50% of Americans have had no increase in their real income since the late 1970s. So the credibility of some of the stories that liberalism tells about itself have been sort of gradually falling apart. Welcome to another episode of Mind of State. I'm Michael Epstein. And I'm Betty Tang. And together we are your hosts for Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair shrinks. Hi, Michael. Hey, Betty. How are you? Michael, can I make another confession? Another one? You did the last week. I know, but it, this is my only space for doing this. I, I hear patients' confessions all the time. <laughs> sure, sure, go ahead. I have headline stress disorder. You have you have what? Headline stress disorder. The news upsets me. Headline stress disorder. Yeah, it's something they coined, I think, in 2017. Yeah, I don't think it's a phenomenon. I don't think you're alone in this. Well, it's it's very overwhelming, and it's all people want to talk about. My patients, my family, my friends, I can't get away from it. So I don't so, know what to do. So so what do you do? You're, you're a shrink. You're helping people with this headline stress disorder. Other than running a podcast or hosting co-hosting a podcast, who do you turn to for help? Well, I, I'm going to try something out today, and I'm going to turn to somebody who is here on the line with us, a political economist. I think these are the people that can help the psychoanalysts. You political know, economist to the rescue. Stress disorder. I like this. A political economist to the rescue. And without further ado, um, I think we should introduce our guest, Dr. William Davies. He's got a lot of insights to share, and he's fascinating. So welcome to Mind of State. Thank you very much. William is a political economist at Goldsmiths, University of London, where he teaches on topics of culture, economics, and government. Among other books and articles, he is the author of The Happiness Industry and Nervous States, Democracy and the Decline of Reason, which will be available here in the U.S. on February 26th, and is a book the New York Times book review called An Interdisciplinary Masterpiece. Congratulations on the upcoming U.S. release, William. Thank you. William, interdisciplinary is what caught our ear about this comment from the New York Times Book Review, although, of course, masterpiece is a hard word to miss. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's a ear catcher. Because, of course, you are a political economist, yet with a book like Nervous States, with the title like Nervous States, we were clued into one of the angles that you take on politics, namely psychology or mind. The title of our podcast is Mind of State. So mm. we, that puts us in the same boat as you. You're nervous states. We are mind of state. So I want to start by asking why this book title, uh, what is a nervous state in your view and what compelled you to write about them? Well, there's a pun in the title, um, which is to say that states in a, in a political sense are in a nervous condition at the moment. I think partly there is a deep uncertainty that runs through the um, constitutions and, and future of many Western liberal democracies at the moment that I think has been widely discussed in terms of what is the future of liberalism in, in Europe, in North America and around the world. Um, and I think there's a kind of fear of that peace itself is not quite as secure as we took for granted for much of the late 20th century. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that I think that a lot of the book is about what is happening to knowledge and expertise and truth in our society, a topic that's been widely analyzed and discussed in the context of the Trump presidency and, and Brexit in my own country and so on. And what I really wanted to sort of try and understand or grapple with, I suppose, was the way in which... Um, our condition is not just about a declining respect for objective facts 
facts and 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 uh, truth and expertise, although I think that that is happening, but is that we are also becoming increasingly adapted to forms of real-time reactivity, that really um, the, our, our forms of subjectivity, our, our form of self that is that has that is emerging in the digital age is one that is acutely attuned to what is going on right now, which is a, a nervous state. Uh, it is We have uh, fantastic infrastructures that allow us to remain in very close contact with emerging trends, with real-time developments, with the news of the last half an hour. Um, and as we develop greater and greater capacity to um, react, to stay in touch in the real time, to be constantly monitoring change, um, which is what our nervous system itself is so brilliantly designed to do. Um, our other types of cognitive and psychological and, and ethical capacities to reflect in a more kind of dispassionate, more critical, more distanced way on things seems under threat in certain ways. So the idea that, you know, you have the news alerts on your phone, you can mm -hmm. update your life, you can see someone's update in real time, you live totally in the present tense. Yeah. And that that does something in your mind emotionally and psychologically yeah. to us. And that there's no time to reflect on other things, to take all this information in and have a deeper process about them, to integrate them. That's right. And I think one of the things I, I try to do in the book is, which is very expansive in its in its scope, but I mean, we can all focus on the more obvious manifestations of, of how crazy our, our public sphere and our politics has gotten with Trump's Twitter feed and that sort of thing. But I, I talk about some other ways in which our contemporary society is being refashioned in this way, such as in the financial sector, where many of the greatest profits do not go to those who um, are, are sort of making slow and informed analyses of changes in the real economy, but hedge funds or high-frequency traders that right. make mm -hmm. huge amounts of money from anticipating um, very, very small but very, very rapid changes in prices and developing technologies or even things like experiments in things like brain supplements and this sort of thing to try and create an edge over one's competitors so that the reaction to change is as quick and as decisive as possible. So in that sense, the areas where progress has been made in our society, technologically, politically, culturally, uh, over recent decades, and Silicon Valley is, I suppose, the, 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 the absolute pioneer of this, has been all about enhancing and supplementing our, our capacities to react and to anticipate and to and to detect change as it happens, and our, our, our very idea of, of what it means to to know the world and to and to live in it, yeah, to live in the world, perhaps has actually not been enhanced by this. Yeah, what you're speaking to is some um, neuroscience, which is a, a state of reactivity kind of truncates our prefrontal cortex because we react in a very emotional way and we draw on our fear centers and our literal reflexes, which come from the limbic brain. And so I wonder if all this progress points to a paradox where we are not actually using the most thoughtful and, and thought-driven parts of Const neurobiology. We're constantly insomniacs who are just like always up for the all-nighter. Right, and sure. driven, driven yeah. by this news cycle. But but how does that point to how people are fearing what's going on? We're so we're in, in this sort of fear state, reactive state, and our politics and our policies and our economics are being driven by this cycle. What prompted you to sort of take nervous states and, and expand it into into a book? What were you seeing? 
Well, the book began with the massive political rupture in my own country, which was the Brexit referendum of, of summer 2016. And we still haven't quite kind of found out where that's all going to lead, but it doesn't seem yeah, to get be on with anywhere. it. Get on with it, man. And I say you got it's time is running I out. You, I think we've only just begun. That's the worry. Yeah, it is. Um, but, You'll do um, like us. You'll figure it out after the bell rings. <laughs> But I think, I mean, uh, and immediately one of the things that many people on the pro-European side of that argument were horrified by was that it seemed that people had won by telling lies in some way. That was uh, that was where this whole concern with post-truth and, and fake news. And, uh, and then we began to wonder if, if there'd been sort of various uh, interventions by Russian robots and troll farms and all the kind of stuff that circulated around the U.S. presidential election of 2016 as well. Right. And um, in England, it was mostly about how much money the National Health Service would be having. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And there was these particular numbers that were bandied around. And effectively, the, the other thing that was seemed to kind of horrify a lot of people on the pro-European side of, of the argument, you know, I'm a pro-European person myself, and I voted to remain in the European Union, and I'm pretty unhappy with the way things are going myself. But what I was trying to do was to understand the, what was going on without simply sort of throwing up my hands in horror. And I think that there was a certain sort of naivety at the heart of the pro-Europe remain side that perhaps has certain echoes with what went wrong with parts of the Democrat campaign later that year, which was that people effectively trust in expert accounts of the world, and they will vote in their own economic interests. And that effectively, although people may not be getting significantly better off under the status quo, they're not going to risk everything by throwing all the cards up in the air. And clearly, there was a certain sort of impulse at large, and is still at large, I think, in, in many societies at the moment, which precisely wants to throw all the cards up in the air and precisely wants to do some kind of violence to the status quo in certain ways. So a lot of what I was initially interested in was partly the sort of seeming declining authority of, of expert claims about the world, of particular facts and statistics that economists produced, but a, a seemingly greater emotional dimension to politics and a more combative element to politics. Because one of the things that statistics aspire to do and, and, and facts from e economics and experts is to provide a, a minimal basis for consensus between otherwise opposing sides of an argument to say, well, at least we agree that this is what's going on in this situation right now. We can agree on the size of the economy or the unemployment rate, whatever it might be. But when people show total disregard for those numbers and or, or are prepared to just invent their own ones, then you're in a totally different type of politics altogether. So the book is, is an attempt to try and tell the long history, firstly, of where did these centers of expertise originate from? What was their kind of initial political pitch going back over 350 years? But then to look at some of the forces that are, that are pitted against them, very prominent among which is the rise of, of the kind of real-time information cycle and the rise of a, of a more kind of reactivity-based politics. Yeah, you know, it's funny, as you're talking, uh, I have friends in Virginia, very, very, very close friends who are Republicans and, you know, uh, have told me many times that they'll only ever vote Republican. That means it could be anybody. It could be a, an empty glass jar and they would... Or a reality TV host. It could, yeah, well, it's interesting. <laughs> when I went down, uh, I stayed with them, um, uh, my friend, uh, she said to me, you know, Trump's doing exactly what we want. He's he's we wanted it all shook up. We wanted mm -hmm. the chaos and he's yeah. in, in and we needed it. Well, that's interesting. How, how does anybody want chaos? What, well, because she felt she felt as though the system had. And I think, uh, William, this is some of what you're also talking about in your book. You know, the the liberal elite 
of which I think all of us can comfortably say we are a part of, uh, assumes rationality and assumes a, a social contract based on you know the english model right that's the the that is our declaration of independence mm-hmm. we 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 borrowed it from you john locke right to a lesser extent the scottish david hume right life liberty the pursuit of happiness all of us have inalienable mm-hmm. rights and the government's job is to protect those rights that's the contract we see mm-hmm. and i think these other people see the a, a total breakdown of that social contract because they don't care about that mm-hmm. right they don't care about that idea they have a different contract that they feel is broken, which is to say they don't have work. They've gone and they've done the hard work. They go to work. They show up, right? They've gone to get their high school education or even technical college or even college. And the system is indifferent to them. And so mm-hmm. the contract that from what the way they perceive the social contract is just not, it hasn't just failed them. Yeah. They look outside and they say, well, nobody's, nobody's talking about how the system has failed me. So chaos is better than this kind of like Mm. stasis, which feels to them deeply immoral. Is this what you're seeing, William? I mean, is this from... Yeah, I mean, I recognize this. And I think, I mean, one of the issues with, to take Brexit as an example is, I mean, Brexit was always perceived and presented as that that it was going to do some economic harm. I mean, one of the people like John Locke and and David Hume are absolutely a a part of this. And there's a there's a very important concept that comes into political and economic thinking in the 17th century um, that the historian of economics, um, Albert Hirschman, writes about, which is the idea of interests um, and that people have interests. And uh, even if people don't know what their interests are, someone else, um, some kind of benign technocrat can can uphold them for them. And that basically means being a little bit richer each year, a bit healthier, living longer, that there are these sorts of things that obviously everybody wants. Uh, and this is the, the, the founding principle of, of, of the philosophy of utilitarianism is that we can all kind of get a little bit more of everything for, over time. Um, and effectively, I think partly that people have not been getting a little, people haven't been getting a bit more, um, but also there's something rather soulless about that as a form of politics. It doesn't, there are certain aspects of humanity that it, that it doesn't speak to. Right. Um, so there's a certain, I suppose, part of what I, part of what struck me in that summer of 2016, when I began work on the book was that in a strange way, the sort of I was also going to say the joy of sabotage in a way, but there's this sort of upsurge of, mm-hmm. of, of, a, of a different mm-hmm. spirit of humanity that a part of me slightly kind of respected it in a strange way, um, that this was a sort of breaking free of, of technocracy. Now, in a way, I mean, partly what we're sort of dancing around here is nationalism, because what right. nationalism mm-hmm. um, offers people, which liberal technocracy never offers people and cannot offer people by its very constitution is to treat them as feeling beings, as communal beings, as beings that are recognized, that each life counts. I mean, part of, I talk a little bit about early nationalism in the book and of how, you know, the the origins of nationalism lie in the aftermath of the French Revolution and where what happened in the aftermath of the French Revolution was that people who became part of this, this, this nation, this, this, this popular mass that could be mobilized also in the Napoleonic Wars, people could become part of a of a mass community that previously hadn't really existed in, in, in any kind of recognized way before. This bestows meaning on life that is not that markets and, and liberal technocracy don't. So I think in a way, what runs through something like Brexit, and maybe there are resonances in the United States, but... Oh, I, for sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, but you know, there's a sense that 
and you hear this from the likes of Steve Bannon and on the more sort of radical right, that the liberals are, are not just sort of not upholding national traditions, but they've almost kind of colonized a proud nation in some way, that, that these technocrats in Washington, D.C. or in Brussels are a sort of foreign power who have colonized a people and are imposing a, a style of politics upon people that comes from somewhere else altogether. People like Bannon refer to the globalists, you know, the people who the people who work in, you know, go to Davos, um, the um, IMF, these sorts of this circuit of, of, of sort of nationalist people. I mean, it's got sort of anti-Semitic undertones sometimes, overtones sometimes, but a type of politics that seems to have kind of broken free from any sort of territorial or national or cultural base. Now, of course, that can be used in various ways, that type of politics. It can point towards some extremely frightening forms of uh, politics. On the other hand, it also potentially taps into some more kind of understandable instincts that people have to be recognized, to be heard, to have their lives not disrupted in various ways. And I think that what those of us who, I suppose, have more liberal sympathies than national sympathies are sort of struggling with at the moment is how to sort of understand some of those instincts without justifying them or, or sort of, I suppose, giving them more authority than, than they already have. Well, what you're pointing to and what you're both pointing to is something that our first guest, Sheldon Solomon, pointed to, which was the need for meaning and culture, mm. which is the human condition to combat the fear of death. Um, yeah. That we, as Kierkegaard said, uh, are aware that we're going to die and that we have limited time on this earth. And what makes us better than an animal? Or even, I think his words were stinking bag of protoplasm mm. <laughs> and is an inimitable way of talking. But this search for meaning um, and this search for what we've been seeing, a narrative, some kind of um, organizing principle against this cold technocracy, as you put it. Mm which is in the realm of maybe foreign powers, maybe conspiratorial anti-Semitic groups, the other immigrants, somebody that is, doesn't connect with us on the ground yeah. in our warm communities, people that we know. And so if that is the case, if it's a dearth of meaning that has created this skepticism about facts and this skepticism about reality, how do we grapple with this? Well, <laughs> I think if I, you know, this is this is the this is the great dilemma. I mean, I think that understanding it is obviously the the first first step, and I think there's a certain sort of, I suppose, a, a form of kind of mass psychoanalysis that is underway, and hopefully can move through some of this. I mean, there's work to be done in unpacking this and understanding this, and that I think is 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 part of it. One of the the, the things that I talk a bit about in the book is the appeal for war, the lure of, of heroism. I think that partly one way of understanding this, this search for meaning and the way in which it's manifests itself in the modern world is it's been drawn towards forms of violent conflict in various ways where it is possible for a life to attain for some sort of immortality to be achieved through some kind of heroic act, even if, even if that means a shorter life. I mean, one of the sort of, I suppose, one of the great kind of existential lies or myths of liberalism dating back to Thomas Hobbes um, in 1651, and I, Hobbes is an important figure in my book as well, is that is that human beings can only possibly want to live as long and as safely as possible. Well, that might be true for most people, but it's not true for everybody. I mean, there is a sort of aspect of the human condition that desires something more and better than just sort of nicer, safer, more prosperous life. And that is clearly, I think, what is, is flowing through our de democratic politics at the moment are some of those desires. And some of those desires come from somewhere, somewhere real and, and somewhere sometimes quite dark, but something that needs to be understood. Now, one thing which I think is interesting is whether that can be diverted anywhere else. I mean, the, the obvious answer at the moment is towards what could be called the war on 
climate change. And, you know, the, the forms of heroism and forms of sacrifice and mutual sacrifice, which is what all of these kind of Brexiteers in, in Britain at the moment are obsessing over the Second World War. They're endlessly talking about, oh, wouldn't it be great if we run out of food and we need the army to kind of help the food get into the country? It'd be just like 1943 all over again sort of thing. Um, but I mean, in a way, there, there are going to be real demands placed on us to, to make sacrifices, to uh, give up some of our prosperity over the next hundred years. I mean, the question is whether some of these sorts of psychic needs and drives can be diverted towards things which I think are, are really, are, are in some ways, more sort of empirically realistic than the sorts of threats that someone like Trump or, or, or Brexiteers are pointing towards. So rather than directing it against the other or, or some other minority group or, or identified um, threat, threatening group to look at climate change, which we all suffer from. But that is in the realm of um, the challenge in that threat is to get people to identify that climate change is a problem, which throws well, us course, back that's, to... <laughs> that's the first hurdle, I suppose. But... <laughs> which throws us back to facts. And yeah, yeah. I mean, you speak about facts as being in the realm of elites and that there is a sort of debate between elites and populists in your country. And it does seem to mirror a debate that's going on here in the United States. Can you say more about that skepticism, that facts are now in the realm of a group? And if you're not a part of that group, you're not going to subscribe to those facts, that facts are not. How did facts and a group get stuck together? Well, I think the the first thing to recognize, I tell some of the history of, of this in the book, is that well, facts have belonged to a group, actually. We have to recognize that there is a kind of a, a core truth to some of the populist critique. This isn't to say that facts are not real or true, but through the history of, of, of modern expertise, dating back again to the, to the late 17th century, the ability to make objective, dispassionate, uh, consensual claims about either nature in the form of the natural sciences or about society in the form of statistics and the social sciences has always been something that self-appointed um, groups of experts, scholars, uh, gentlemen, some of them were merchants, um, and some of them were sort of more like kind of data geeks, really, but who pioneered these mathematical techniques and, and, and experimental methods in the, in the late 17th century, mostly, um, and began to circulate their findings within a fairly niche group of people. Um, and these were fairly tightly controlled groups. So there is a certain sort of, they weren't democratically elected, they were self-appointed. And this remains, I think, the suspicion that maybe has lurked there ever since, that um, there are certain professions, and within this we include journalists, politicians, um, academics, um, other forms of, of expert, who seem to have seized a monopoly on the ability to make claims about the world. Um, And when they get challenged by people who are somehow sort of outside of that cartel, they can be quite sniffy about it. So there is a there is a political problem here. I mean, this is not it's not the populists sort of, you know, invented the the sort of uh, the the fact the fact that experts are not democratically accountable in a in a in a simple way is is a genuine problem. Now, there is a whole kind of field of of, of, of science studies and science policy studies, which tries to kind of grapple with this, talk about, you know, how should scientists engage with the public and how can they become better at sort of deliberation and democracy and that sort of thing. But I think that one thing that has happened, which I think is very dangerous over the last 30 years, to bring it much more up to date, I suppose, is that the distinction between these different groups has these different elite groups has started to blur in, in, in important ways. I think that the professionalization of politics, uh, which has been a really real problem, 
from in, in, in Britain anyway, where it's not really that clear who's an expert advisor, who's a politician, um, the rise of these spin doctors who are sort of, you know, former journalists who then go and work in politics or the revolving door between Goldman Sachs and the White House and this sort of thing, where the sense that, oh, they're all the same and they all went to the same kind of Ivy League colleges and they all know each other and so on, which is this is also a huge problem in French politics, where, you know, the people who work for Le Monde newspaper are the same people who go to Macron's dinner parties or whatever it might be. This sense of a of a sort of a, of a cloistered, unaccountable elite. It's a real sociological phenomenon. So it's not imagined. So that's one ingredient. And then the second ingredient, in addition to that professionalization of, of, of a sort of technocratic elite, the second ingredient is social media, because until... 10, 15 years ago, you might have had all of these thoughts about these elites as you were sitting on your sofa watching CNN or reading the New York Times or whatever it might be. But you had no, very few ways, other than going down your, your local bar and mouthing off or whatever it might be, uh, you had very few ways of connecting with other people who had similar thoughts about all of this. So technologically, the monopoly on the capacity to report on the world has been broken uh, by YouTube, Facebook, you know, by these people like Alex Jones and Infowars and others. Um, so the technological monopoly on the capacity to tell the truth about the world has been broken. And then it just looks like a cultural monopoly. It just looks like, well, those are the insiders. So mm. that, I think, is what's happened over the last sort of 30 years or so. So there's a divide between social media and the legacy media, legacy media being yeah. in the realm of the elites in this club and, and these people who are all of a socioeconomic background of a class. Yeah. There's the powers in the realm of a, of a high class group. And so we're just left with mob rule. Well, <laughs> I mean, the question is, how do we deal with wh what kind of dialogue is possible between the so-called elite and the so-called mob? With Mark Zuckerberg as the fulcrum, right? I mean, that's the problem. Well, yeah. That's well, that's also I mean, driven by I, economics, in, right? In my utopia, these platforms get closed down overnight. Can we talk about that? Like, right. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, imp the impact of social media is very serious on all realms now. Um, you know, even as a trauma therapist, I, I have patients who encounter their perpetrators online by not their choice. And then they're also stirred by events in the media because they have their notifications on. And these are things that are stirring people from the micro to the macro. So yeah, say some more about social media. Like you would close down yeah. these platforms. Well, I mean, I, I, I sort of at the end of the, my book, I, I raise a kind of thought experiment. Imagine if it was 1945 right now, and we'd just come out of a, of a long war, and we could plan a kind of post-war peace in the way that the, the Bretton Woods meetings of 1944 did, which set up the post-war financial system. What would you demand? What would you do? And I think, you know, quite unambiguously, I think that Facebook and Twitter and, and, and so on are, are sort of, of of no sort of social value. I mean, they what do they sell? They sell friendship. That's the oldest social value of, of them all. And they're, they're claiming to kind of repackage it and sell it back to us. I mean, it's, 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 it's sort of absurd, really. Well, um, they are also in the hands of advertisement. They, they are really using people's information to sell to other corporations that are funding sure. Facebook. Of course, sorry, that's their, obviously their, their commercial product. But I mean, in terms of what is it that they, they work to trap people, we know that some of their former employees have come out and said that they're frightened by the extent to which platforms like Facebook are seeking to kind of cultivate addictive behaviors and they exploit insecurities in the way in which they sell advertising space. You know, there was a leak in, in the Australian Facebook was bragging about how it could identify insecure and anxious teenagers and could target messages directly at them and this sort of thing. I mean, these are malign institutions and right and then there's the, Myanmar which is even more pernicious and deadly 
There's was Myanmar, you know, right. yes, exactly. to how it yes. was used. And it yeah. seems to me that part of what you're discussing here, uh, if I may, is this notion that there's no way in which Facebook sees itself responsible for the content with which it disseminates. It talks about itself solely sure. in the context of a sort of platform without value. Doesn't It doesn't right. value one thing over the other. It's neutral, yeah. so to speak. But... But, but there's no then civic liberal, in the way we think mm. of it, responsibility. And ultimately, what you have to do then is somebody has to regulate the content, whether Facebook yeah. regulates it or in your vision of a perfect world, right? <laughs> the liberal yeah, elite sure. do so by shutting it down or keeping it from ever happening. And I think it gets back to what you've been talking about, really, what you're at the end of yeah. the day is, you know, which is that who has a say. And as you were talking earlier about Bannon and the sort of globalism and Trump and Brexit and all of the world that we're swimming in now, I kind of wonder if we all don't think that the liberal experiment is under assault, because in fact, it is. And, you know, the liberal notion, at least as we understood it, is is universal rights, right? The, the idea yeah. that it doesn't matter what nation you were born into, we all share inalienable rights. I mean, that is, if we go back to your post-war model. I mean, the, the great document that comes out of the Second World War is the Universal Declaration of yeah. Human Rights, which is the sort of great summit. It's the Everest. It's the, it's the apogee of the liberal experiment. And, you know, what's grown up in its place recently is, a, is an attack against that. In philosophy, they call communitarian, right? Mm. The idea that, that human beings, you know, when you think about emotion, if you were asked to have moral duty to a stranger or moral duty to your child, mm. are you supposed to really have the same value that you have for a stranger that you do for your, a child, your own child? You can't, mm. right? I mean, the liberal experiment denies some ways human motion. It's too, yeah. it's too reason-based. And, and this is where I think we are right now. You know, people who are upset with Trump, say, at the border, gassing children and, you know, the, the denial of refugees, which is, by the way, a denial of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. I mean, they are holding on to the liberal notion of universal rights and the people who support Trump or who I think drive Brexit in your country reject that notion. They, they're, they're more yeah. community based. They say, you know, my yeah. moral obligation is to my family to my mm -hmm. wife, my children, my husband, my neighborhood, my country, uh, and this notion- My that, group. My group, this notion that I'm supposed to take these esoteric elite values, mm. that seems to me the fight that we have right now. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that is a, a fair take on, on, on what's, what's going on. I mean, I think that, I mean, one of the things that I, I talk a bit about in the book, I mean, the book is, is, is split into two halves. The first is, is called the decline of reason. And the second half is called the rise of feeling. So it's, it's partly about how did that liberal edifice stop functioning uh, properly. And the second is about how this more, uh, more sort of um, a vision of political heroism and of leadership and of belonging came uh, sort of surged in its place. But I think liberalism also did some damage to itself over the late 20th century, partly with escalating inequality. I mean, one of the, just to give an example, 
I discuss a bit about the seeming declining credibility of, of statistics in the book. Um, you take a statistic, which is probably one of the most kind of prominent numerical indicators in public life these days, which is gross domestic product. And GDP has roughly in the United States grown by uh, sort of two or three percent a year every year over kind of what well, most of the 20th century, but fairly steadily since the 1970s. But we now know, thanks to the work of Thomas Piketty, the French economist, that 50% of Americans have had no increase in their real income since the late 1970s. So this means that half of the population, while the headline indicators keep going up and up and up in a fairly steady fashion, 50% of people have actually not had any increase in their in their prosperity or their, their quality of life. Meanwhile, of course, you've also got these other indicators that are heading in the, precisely the wrong direction, such as these frightening rise in midlife mortality rates that Case mm-hmm. and Deaton mm-hmm. detected in, in the United States in recent years. So you've got a kind of, in some ways, I think aspects of the Liberal Project have concealed that under the surface things have not been nearly as good as some of the sort of macro stories have, have made out. Now, that none of that in itself directly explains Trump. We know, you know, that, that your average Trump voter was, was actually richer than your average Clinton voter in 2016. But I think what that does show is that the credibility of some of the stories that liberalism tells about itself have been sort of gradually falling apart. And the other thing which I think is worth mentioning in terms of your account of the kind of communitarian and the liberal and, and seeing liberalism as a as a sort of abstract defense of universals, which is in the realm of philosophy is absolutely right. But you take something like the Iraq war and, and the sort of rise of, of neoconservative foreign policies in the in the late 20th and early 21st century, effectively treated liberalism not as as a sort of abstract universal, but instead as a set of Western values to be aggressively asserted and defended as and, a weapon and dropped yeah. on countries from 10,000 feet. And this is similar to the to the way in which certain sort of figures of the so-called intellectual dark web, these sort of, you know, some of the, the kind of more sort of bullish defenders of like some of the new atheists, these sort of people like Ben Shapiro and uh, Richard Dawkins and, and Christopher Hitchens when he was around mm-hmm. and, and so on. These people who basically say, yeah, actually, the West is best. And I can show you that the West is best. And this always teetered on the edge of Islamophobia and so on. That liberalism started to kind of mutate into, into something that was itself rather a sort of hostile identity-based phenomenon, actually really before the rise of, of, of this populism. Mm-hmm. And something that you, you've pointed to, William, um, about this mobilism and the aggression and the, I'm using words that I'm, I'm going to point to with the violence and the heroism, points to something that um, another British psychoanalyst, D.W. Winnicott, pointed to mm-hmm. in the sense that aggression is also Melanie Klein. Um, Aggression is is actually an expression in a sense of libido. And right. so you want to not be dead. You want to not be passive. You don't want to be frozen in anxiety. Mm. You want to, I mean, we as human beings want to be yeah. mobilized. And so perhaps we might mobilize towards aggression, maybe not even towards our own best ends, but it is a, ma- a means of showing that to ourselves that we are alive. And it yeah. seems like this might be something that is also manifesting in addition to what's being shown in the economic point of view of what you're saying. Sure. That that these two things combine together to yeah. uh, point to a, a trend that is um, that is complex and, and alarming. Yeah. The language in all of this is quite interesting. We you use the word mobilize. Um, the term to move means we can move move physically, but we also talk about emotion as a moving. And emotion itself has what motion in. So to emote uh, is to move outwards. And so the sort of liberalism, as you just said, treats us as this kind of static object, a kind of a, a particular unit in a big statistical 
data set. Maybe it's the data set is expanding from year on year in terms of population growth or GDP growth or life expectancy and so on. But but other than that, it's kind of static. And the task of government from a liberal perspective is to represent so that you take this mass of, of people who are sort of all getting on with their potentially quite dull private lives and getting a job and having a family and so on. And then you represent their interests in a parliament or a congress or in the legal system and so on. And above all, you, you, the way you do that is to uphold peace. I mean, these are the sort of core rudiments of a, of a liberal kind of ideal of government. Whereas the alternative, which is the populist one, is this one of, of to move people. And you will move people both in an emotional sense, but you will also move them in a physical sense. You'll move them onto the streets. You'll you'll move them in a some kind of a people will come together and, and move from A to B. And all of the language of, of populism is always about motion in some way. I mean, um, Jeremy Corbyn in, in my own country is what you might call a left populist, uh, the leader of the Labour Party. Um, and the organization that was set up to support him, because he was such an implausible candidate to start with, is called Momentum. It's about trying to create this momentum around Corbyn, this constant kind of movement so that in some ways he's constantly in campaigning mode. So that that's one thing. And the other thing which sometimes I, I always think is kind of telling about what's going on in our public sphere right now is that for anyone who uses Twitter, you'll know that when you decide you want to connect with someone on Twitter, you don't sort of like them or tune into them or, or, or sort of read them, you follow them. So they are effectively becoming your kind of leader in some way that you are going with them where they go. And I think that all of these kind of metaphors and non-metaphors of, of movement, uh, motion, momentum, leadership, followership, and so on, tells us something about a very different idea of what politics is from that rather static ideal of representation that you find in the liberal tradition. I think you're right. And uh, we talked to Liliana Mason, who is a political scientist here at the University of Maryland, and she was talking about partisanship between the Democrats and uh, Republicans here in the U.S. And that in the Republican base, that this conflict is used to mobilize, mm. that if you suffer from an anxiety, then you, it was her or she who said that then you're frozen. And that speaks to something, this kind of language speaks to my work and trauma, because we have fight, flight, freeze. Mm. Freeze is the most extreme when you're so terrified you can't move. Yeah. Um, and that is a, a flooding of the brain of a cortisol. Mm. The body shuts down because the animal determines that they can't fight the mm. uh, aggressor, the predator. But fight and flight are mobile. And this mm. is the way we deal with fear if we are not so incapacitated by terror that, mm. that we freeze. And so she was pointing to the fact that the political groups in the United States, particularly on the populism front of Republicans, are mobilizing, um, maybe not according to policies, but according to emotions, yeah. but that people are moving and that is something that we as humans want to do. Sure. But I think, and I'm not a psychologist or even less so a neuroscientist or evolutionary neuroscientist, but I think what's interesting there, what you just said about the so-called fight or flight mode, is that clearly it taps into a form of subjectivity and, and no doubt a, an aspect of the brain that is very different from the reflective, thoughtful one. It's the instinctive, reactive one. Absolutely. And it's the same aspect of the brain that interface design is, is constantly concerned with when, in relation to your smartphone mm -hmm. or a social media platform. Or for that matter, to go back to my previous example, a, a Bloomberg um, trading screen, is that all of these things are designed, and what Silicon Valley is, is obsessed with, is how to create the interfaces through which we can act without having to really think. And, and of course, this has all sorts of conveniences. It means that we can sort of, you know, dial up a pizza without even, you know, just say it to Alexa or whatever it might be, or you <laughs> swipe, you, you know, your eyes get drawn to the bit of the screen that seems interesting and, you know, that you click on something because you're appalled by it or some kind of emotion is triggers you to actually click on something. But it does have the frightening prospect, the space of thinking. And this is where 
I think you know a lot of what Hannah Arendt's work on on the the threat of of totalitarianism. She stresses that the what totalitarianism and fascism how they prosper is through a lack of thought. Um, and this is what a lot of what she talked about in relation to the famous um, work on on the Adolf Eichmann trial in Jerusalem of that here was a someone who had sort of lost the ability to think. This politics that operates via a fight or flight, instinctive, reactive, nervous state, supported by interfaces that are so perfectly attuned to the movements of our eyes and the sensations of our, you know, our fingers in the way we swipe on a screen and so on, that we have lost, you know, that spaces of thinking and reflection. And I don't want to I'm not a someone who says it's, we need to save reason. I'm not Steven Pinker saying that the sort of you know Western rationality is under threat. And we need to sort of aggressively fight back. But what is under threat, I think, are those kind of times and spaces in mm-hmm. which thought, dialogue, and reflection can take place. Within which I would include the space of psychotherapy. Um, and and these this is what we need to defend right now. I think you're right. And and in that regard, these conflicts, and there's something that I've reflected on with Trump, his aggression and his language and his constant tweeting really creates a, an atmosphere of non-thinking. Yeah. It's a cycle. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And we can't look away from him because he's so outrageous. And what he says and what he does seems quasi dangerous. But we can't look away either. Because if we look away, something could happen or it's just such a spectacle. It's hard not to look away. But then we're stuck. We're stuck yeah. in this this cycle of non-thinking. Um, which also I know that in social media, all the Silicon Valley corporations employ neuroscientists to right. hack the brain. Um, there have been articles yeah. about that so that they are literally looking at ways the likes create little dopamine rushes so that we they aggregate those likes so that we are become addicted to social media because we are going yeah. back like a Pavlov's dog to get our pleasurable rush of people yeah. approving of us. And there's also, I think, a you know a major commercial um, problem here that the media faces as well. I mean, there are there has been some good work done by people like the uh, journalism scholar Jay Rosen and 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 populism scholars as well have have tried to put out advice on how the media should deal with Trump. And one of the main parts of that advice is do not get drawn into the sort of you know hour by hour sort ignore of ignore him, right? <laughs> exactly. You have to try and ignore it. You have to of ignore. Of course, it. that's difficult given the you know the the financial pressures that the media is under and the rise right. of of a kind of clickbait sort of rival and so you know they need they need attention these legacy media outlets and so on but i think ultimately that critique is is, is very um important and needs to be taken to heart but you're, you're absolutely right i mean one, i mean i i confess um you know i, I use twitter too much um, and I'm sort of, <laughs> I, well you can tweet about us we're all doing yeah, c- confessions I, I today. about mind estate well you know it's it's funny you say all this because i've held for a while that donald trump is the most popular president in american history and may be among the most popular Americans in history. And that... In terms of how people pay attention to him, for sure. Yeah, that the polls which talk about approval or disapproval are really irrelevant. They're the old model, right? They're the model of uh, Jimmy Carter or Ronald Reagan or uh, Dwight Eisenhower or, you know, Maggie Thatcher or whomever, right? That Trump drives MSNBC. CNN was going downhill before. Right. And that's when Trump knows that. And Trump loves that. And Trump talks about it endlessly. Their ratings would tank without me. And you know what? He's right. He's absolutely right. And it becomes, as you say, Betty, like a dopamine hit for the Rachel Maddows of the world, right? Because, you know, you look at the hard news places or the places purport to be, they're all Trump 
mm, almost all the time. Yeah. Right. They're Trump obsessed. So that, you know, something like in, in our country, William, you know, the uh, the crisis of opioids, of opioid addiction, you know, it, it gets play. But on some of these cable news places, it gets like no play. You know, I was in England a lot last year making a documentary and I was amazed when I would watch the BBC how how just radical i mean for a while you know you the lead story one night was on the civil war in yemen which mm. prior to khashoggi here was completely absent from the news syria gets a very syria gets no play no at all play. um we invaded iraq along with you you were our you know great ally in that and yet the chaos that we created is utterly gone and that i mean those are foreign stories but even things like the opioid crisis which is a very real, meaningful crisis in the lives of yeah. millions of Americans, uh, is pushed aside by the rush of Trump and the need to respond to every tweet in real time on the news, mm. you know, not just on yeah. Twitter, but on cable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the other things that got me interested it, it led led to this to my book actually was I, I um, was working probably about five or six years ago now um, uh, looking at different forms of interface design and became very interested in the rise of of a of a what I described as a dashboard culture um, which is um, if you think of the kind of way in which facts were reported in say you know the 19th century you would have a kind of quarterly shell to report and a book of accounts and a daily newspaper or so on well this was true up until the you know late 20th century whereas now particularly in the United States I've always been struck by when you turn on the TV there's normally about five things going on on the screen at once you know there's there's like sort of stock information there's there's weather forecast there's someone speaking there's a talking head somewhere there's something else there's headlines going on and there's a sort of um there's a this kind of babble really um of of a sort of of a it's like a sort of river that's constantly running through your living room of 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 the real time and you know that i mean the dashboard as a as a sort of metaphor for how we get information i mean a, the most kind of common idea of a dashboard is the car dashboard and it's this sort of you know like constant feedback on how are things going right now um you know different indicators different lights are flashing different sort of things are certain numbers are up certain numbers are down but it, it's not really a way of getting an objective view of the world what it is is a way of sort of navigating again it's back to metaphors of mobilization and movement um it's ways of sort of finding out you know how is this right now um but that's rather a different sort of you know what that it doesn't provide you with is a sort of an account of the world or a or a, or a story about the world that actually has any kind of kind of narrative arc with any kind of meaning instead all it does is provide a kind of a, a comfort blanket that i think i'm okay right now it's a uh, data dump actually a rather different psychic state yeah it's a data dump and right? what you're both pointing yeah. to is the fact that it's fragmented it's all these bits and yeah. pieces of information but there's no it's infotainment but it's not real information it's it, we've talked with other interviewees about the drama that's going on in the news but what's underneath the drama we don't have time to think about what's going on underneath this drama because it's spinning constantly and we're being bombarded by these bits and pieces of information you don't even know where to look if you if you're no. watching the news and there's the ticker which is the aftermath of 9/11 right so the ticker didn't exist in America prior to 9/11 that's the band at the bottom of the screen, the runnings, the running text, thing. and that okay, happened sure. after nine eleven, and it never went away. Yeah. And if you're reading it, you can't listen, right? Yeah. Right. So there's no way to assimilate the information you're given, because if you're listening, you're not reading. If you're reading, you're not listening, and you're usually going back and forth between both. 
And right. so nothing has any meaning anymore yeah. because nothing, there's it's, no value it's attached permeating. to it. permeating, yeah. Well, but one isn't, one doesn't have primacy over the other. Right. And I think this is part of what you were saying, William, about previously shutting down Facebook, which I think mm. is a great idea. <laughs> I personally have left Facebook to, to the consternation of our media, what, our, our, <laughs> one of our co-founders, because he's like, why aren't you on Facebook? I was like, you know, I felt bad about myself and I have a pretty yeah. reasonable it just life. takes up too much time. You're you're, you're on there. You can't person. be on there for 10 minutes. Well, for me, I think this gets back to the things that you were talking about, William, at the beginning of the conversation, you know, how in which we've become sort of uh, how the old model has been blown up and a, and a new mm. model, which we don't fully understand, has taken its place. Mm. You know, in the old models, we were consumers of culture. We would read a book. We would watch a TV show. And we often did that in large groups. Right. In this new model, we're all producers of content mm -hmm. and we're constantly, I think, broadcasting our lives, turning our lives into content, almost programming. Right. Mm. The Kim Kardashian may be the very best at this new model. And ratings are now likes. I mean, I have two young daughters who I love dearly, who less so now as they're getting a little bit older, but when certainly when they were in middle school, you know, they would obsess over how quickly it would take them to get a certain number of likes and how their mm. likes were relative to other people. And, you know, it was like, oh, my God, you're like a Hollywood executive talking about your overnights. <laughs> um, and that is the dopamine uh, hits yeah. that they're, but they're, your young brains are being sort when of inculcated in a, into. Yeah. And when you live in a culture of 300 million programmers all competing against each other, right, how do you determine fact, you know, how does, there is no navigate all that information. Well, and where, you know, where is your leader in that? And I think that's some of what you're talking about, you know, the assault on elitism and this notion mm. that, you know, it's like, we've all been balkanized down to the individual. Mm. But what you're saying in terms of shutting off Facebook, just like you did, Michael, you shut it off for yourself. So we still have agency in this world. Oh, but um, it comes at a cost. Every cost has a benefit. This is this. Oh, is I the, feel better. This exactly, I feel exactly. Better. There's no plus without a minus, no minus without a plus. And so maybe William, what you're speaking to is that whereas you know globally we could shut down Facebook so it's not available, everybody has a choice, but. We do each individually have agency. And if we are yeah. aware of what these things are doing to us, we obviously have to take time to think about it rather than react, which is a challenge. But if we do use our agency and mobilize, maybe yeah. not in different ways and not to get on Facebook all the time, which is a, a certain kind of mobilization, but, but maybe not quite real. You know, we're, we're running out of time, but in terms of our nervous states, you know, mm. this wonderful pun. Um, we live in a nervous state where we're constantly clicking and we're constantly being bombarded by fragments of information. We live in these nervous societies that are under these battles between elitism and, and populism uh, here in the United States. It's conservatism and liberalism, Democrats and Republicans. Where do you see us going? How do, how do we navigate this? Well, I think you're right about agency. I think that, I mean, we have to defend the spaces that already exist, which have not been permeated by some of these forces. And we need to, you know, we still have the capacity to build new types of defense mechanisms, which protect human relationships and time and space from these sorts of forces. Of course, that requires political work. 
I mean, I think that some of these divides seem extremely intractable, but I do think that we need to be very clear about what the threat is. And I think the threat is not emotion as such, it's not emotion versus reason, it's fast versus slow. That's the kind mm-hmm. of kind of key sort of takeaway or conclusion of my book is we don't, you know, rather than saying we've got these rational elite versus this sort of purely kind of emotional, um, ignorant mob, the question is how we can try and defend slowness, including emotional slowness, which is, you know, how many kind of caring and emotional and loving relationships happen, or in, are things that endure and are don't, not sort of completely kind of sort of transactional and, and sort of move very, very quickly. Uh, and, you know, and I, and I talk a bit about, I mean, some of the ways in which the communication of something like climate science has, uh, is changing is partly to try and get scientists to act in a more emotional and, and, and rounded and human way about the things that, that confront us right now. So things like the March for Science, I mean, that I think was probably the, the right step. It's quite a risky thing to do, but where the scientists mobilized on the streets of Boston and uh, Washington, D.C. and around the United States after the beginning of Trump's presidency. But is that science, I think, has to become more humane and, and, and more honest about the fact that it is, a, it is a community to some extent. It's not a sort of transcendent set of unquestionable truths. And there are sort of these interesting experiments in trying to get scientists in relation to things like climate to open up more about how scared they are and how worried they are and what they think you know what what this really means to them and that this is actually a a kind of fight for humanity it's not just about abstract laws of nature and mathematics and things that go on somewhere else so i think that's that's a key part of that in relation to truth one of the things that i think is really fascinating and this is a note of optimism is if you look across various societies including the united states at these surveys on trust that are done is that the trust in politicians and the media is just disastrous. It's been kind of plummeting for years. Um, and trust in certain parts of the scientific establishment is sort of fluctuates and so on. But the two areas where trust is very high and, and remains high, one is in, in the United States of the military, which perhaps isn't that surprising. But the other is mm-hmm. still in, in doctors and nurses. And, I, and that's true also across Europe as well. That's and I think maybe like what, what those things have in common is that they provide forms of, of physical protection of one kind or another. I think that the elites, the professions that still in some sense are kind of like whether aggressively or or in a more caring, nurturing fashion, are in some sense defending humanity in its full bodied, rounded, emotional, rational way, are that still the centers of, of power and authority to which people turn when they're afraid in various ways. Now, I suppose you could say, therefore, that a pacifist version of populism is one that extracts the caring spirit from that lesson rather than the military one. Because I do think that mobilization has to be part of our politics. We can't renounce both the opportunities, no. but also the sort of the, the feelings that mobilization offers people. Yeah. And it's interesting because what you talk about in terms of protection, that is a very basic need. Yeah. You know, when you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we care about food, shelter, clothing. We must before we care about higher orders of, of need and protection and safety is, is among the, the most basic mm-hmm. tier. And so that people still trust, maybe because of they, out of necessity, they must trust the fact that, or want to trust that their, their society is secure and their, their health is secure. They're physically mm-hmm. secure is, is an interesting note. Well, I think we're out of time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you, William. Thank you so no, it's much. It's been a great pleasure. It's been very interesting. We've reached the end of yet another session. And as I like to say to Michael, time to take our problems home with us. 
Mind of State is a production of Mind of State Media, LLC, and Hangar Studios, NYC. Our Cracker Jack producer is Caroline Quash. Our engineer is Chad Dugat. Mind of State's original music is composed by Joel Goodman, courtesy of Uber Music. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Michael Epstein. You can connect with us on Twitter at Mind of State Pod and at our website, mindofstate.com. You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.